This is the San Francisco Experience with your host, Jim Herlihy. Season 6, Episode 15. San Francisco Noir, America's Bad Dream. San Francisco has a past. San Francisco has a reputation. San Francisco is like your friend's sister, the flirty, racy one, who always seemed ready to sneak out of her bedroom window late at night, looking for a good time. And that's one of the reasons that the city of San Francisco is America's favorite city. The wild history of San Francisco was another factor why it featured so prominently in crime movies and TV series. The city has a reputation for hiding those who have run out of options. After all, it's the last stop, geographically speaking. You're facing the Pacific Ocean, looking out from Land's End, west, towards Asia. The long history of tolerance and lawlessness, the gold rush, the rowdy and bawdy Barbary Coast days, and the political corruption and graft, which is still with us up to today, mark San Francisco's history. Of course, a long string of infamous criminals have added to its image of crime, danger, and a fear for your life. It's certainly an edgy culture. We were, and still are, the gateway to Asia. With the largest Chinese population in North America outside of China and a strong presence of other Asian cultures, San Francisco projected the intrigue and enchantment of the Far East. It was perceived by the rest of America as having all of the violent, erotic, and lustful aspects of Asia. Despite being much smaller than New York, or Los Angeles for that matter, San Francisco became a major setting for the American noir film genre. Dashiell Hammett was one of many Pulp Fiction crime writers here in the city during the 1920s. He created his classic novel, The Maltese Falcon, here in San Francisco, in 1928, while he lived at 891 Post Street. The mystery and the dread in his novel and other film noir that are set in San Francisco mythologized the the place as both menacing and romantic, yet puzzling. All of that mystery enveloped in its signature fog. Its majestic but harsh landscape only serves to amplify those qualities. The steep hills, shadowy alleys, and the crooked streets high above the Pacific Ocean and Bay also make the city seem otherworldly and threatening to countless moviegoers in the Midwest the South, New York, and rural America. Add to that 
two infamous prisons, namely Alcatraz and San Quentin, with its old gas chamber. And if you weren't already scared as a moviegoer in middle America, you soon would be. Even the iconic Golden Gate Bridge, marking the edge of the North American continent, seems imperious and cold. Too often, it's the last view of suicides as they jump into the ocean to end it all. The San Francisco noir film brought all of these dark, complex histories and threads together. When French film critics in the 1940s first viewed new American films like The Maltese Falcon, Murder My Sweet, and Double Indemnity, they coined the term film noir, which in French means black film or dark film, to describe the existential dread that these films summed up. American journalists were quick to seize on the term, presenting a darker side to the city of St. Francis. In today's podcast, we'll focus on some of San Francisco's more destructive moments throughout its history and how this city of 875,000 people has always come roaring back. It is not coincidental that the flag of San Francisco features a phoenix, the mythical bird arising triumphantly from the ashes. Of late, during the pandemic, San Francisco's East Coast newspaper critics have written about the outflow of residents to other states, squalid street scenes of homeless encampments, soaring crime rates, boarded-up downtown landmarks, and city hall corruption on an historic scale. But don't count out the city by the bay. To paraphrase the great American writer Mark Twain concerning false reports of his demise, he sent the following telegram from London to the press in the United States, and I quote, The reports of my death are greatly exaggerated, unquote. The cover art for today's episode shows great fires consuming San Francisco's downtown skyscrapers in 1906 after the earthquake. Shortly after the 7.8 earthquake on April 18, 1906, thousands of citizens fled the smoldering ruins heading to anywhere other than San Francisco. Much like the exodus of the office workers which began almost one year ago, as COVID lockdowns closed down the city. Rents plummeted, restaurants, bars, and shops closed, and have yet to reopen. But in 1906, two months after the Tembler, the San Francisco Chronicle, which is our newspaper of record, reported that many of the refugees were returning to the city. So San Francisco was not over, as it were. Greener pastures that were expected in East Coast cities 
did not materialize. So they all came back, or at least many of them did. Today, and the San Francisco experience has been reporting on the COVID exodus of 2020, Austin, Miami, Las Vegas, Seattle, Portland, Sacramento are among the new destinations for San Franciscans. Even the richest man in America, Elon Musk, of SpaceX and Tesla fame, who decamped for Texas in late 2020, seemed to forget that all the unique factors that created his $160 billion net worth, the largest fortune in America today, all came together here in the Bay Area. So here are eight periods in our past when San Francisco was left for dead, out for the count, all but given up on, but the city by the bay ended up bouncing back stronger than ever. The first such brush with death was the end of the gold rush, and that was 1853 to 1857. The first major gold strike at Sutter's Creek in Northern California in 1849, which was also the year that California became a state, saw tens of thousands of migrants stream into San Francisco on their way to the gold fields to find their fortune. The gold rush actually peaked in 1852. It lasted for about three years. But the journeyman miners was increasingly displaced by larger mining operations, industrial mining operations, if you will. But even then, in the early 1850s, San Francisco was quite expensive. Everything had to be imported, and we didn't have the Transcontinental Railroad, nor did we have the Panama Canal. So everything had to be shipped in from the East Coast around Cape Horn. Hence, everything was quite expensive in San Francisco. So many of the fortune seekers, rather than struggle in the city here in San Francisco, decided to head out to Napa County and Sonoma counties to farm or to work the land or to homestead the land. And they themselves created a whole other ecosystem of agriculture and wealthy, productive operations, which exist to this day. Much of the gold and silver that was mined in the foothills made its way back to San Francisco and was invested productively in railroads, the banking industry, and lots of buildings and apartments to house the ongoing stream of new migrants. In fact, the end of that first economic boom in the gold fields helped San Francisco to settle down, if you will, with many schools, hospitals, and civic institutions founded during that era post the gold rush, because there was a need for those institutions and there was excess manpower to actually man those institutions. 
Additionally, commercial enterprises were set up, a myriad of them were set up, to meet the needs of a growing middle class. The second great body blow to the city of San Francisco was the 1906 earthquake and great fire. Over 3,000 San Franciscans were killed, and San Francisco at that time had a population of 400,000. The 7.8 magnitude quake was epicentered close to the city out in the Pacific Ocean. But the greatest destruction and devastation came as a result of the fires which ignited early the same morning of the earthquake on April 18th. A large proportion of the city's housing stock was destroyed, so many residents, after camping in the parks, exited the city for nearby smaller towns. San Mateo and Walnut Creek, for instance, both advertised safe and available housing for the tens of thousands of San Franciscans burned out of their homes. But two months later, in June 1906, as a massive rebuilding program of the city got underway, wages soared as labor was in very short supply. So not only did many of those original evacuees return to take up higher paying jobs than they had before the earthquake, new migrants from Europe, Japan, and the rest of the United States flocked into the city to rebuild it for much better career opportunities and much higher salaries. The third major crisis to hit San Francisco was after World War II, 1945 to 1948. The war years had seen an economic boom in the shipyards as war material, especially the famous Liberty ships, were turned out by the dozens every week. There had been a huge influx of unskilled African-American labor from the South to fill these new jobs, and those new migrants took over the homes and the vacated apartments which the interned Japanese Americans had to give up when they were sent off to the camps, which of course was a very shameful period in our history. The San Francisco Presidio was the headquarters of the U.S. Sixth Army, and with that, there was a, a huge flow of service personnel which was passing through the city en route to the battlefields in the South Pacific. But VJ Day on August 15, 1945, brought an abrupt end to the booming wartime economy, and jobs seemed to evaporate overnight. Added to the fact that returning servicemen were starting families, they were looking for homes, and they couldn't find work. Housing shortages and rent spikes were the norm. Traffic exploded, putting even more pressure on the city's rickety infrastructure. Even renowned San Francisco newspaper columnist Herb Cain in 1945 was quoted as saying, quote, Compared to the complexity of today's problems, the task of rebuilding a city after an earthquake and fire seems comparatively simple, 
unquote. But by 1949, vast new tracts of suburban housing was being developed in San Francisco and environs, giving skilled jobs to returning vets and providing homes to those who could afford to buy them. Again, San Francisco turned adversity to its advantage. Now, coming on to the 1960s, from 1967 to 69, which we all know is the summer of love, and its aftermath, was actually no great economic windfall for the city. On the contrary, by 1968, crime in Haight-Ashbury soared as, and as a result, the counterculture types moved out of San Francisco and Haight-Ashbury and headed off north to Marin County or south down to Woodside and other towns in San Mateo. The economy of San Francisco was stagnant, but the city survived. San Francisco's homicide rate soared for four consecutive years in the 1970s, peaking at 142 in 1977. By contrast, in 2020, the homicide rate, the annual homicide rate was 45. So it was less than one third. In fact, it was less than, it was about 20% of what it was in 1977. The famous Zodiac killer was on the loose in San Francisco during the 70s. And of course, the assassinations of Mayor Moscone and Supervisor Harvey Milk in 1978, as well as Clint Eastwood's portrayal of Dirty Harry in the movies, caused a decline in tourism as people felt that the city was simply unsafe. There was also a huge flight to the suburbs of San Francisco's middle class. 1985 to 1990 saw an explosion of the tech industry in San Jose and on the peninsula, but it largely ignored San Francisco. At the same time, there was a corporate headquarters exodus out of San Francisco, which was prompted as prompted by the availability of large suburban office parks and cheaper rents and more modern buildings available in office parks like Bishop's Ranch and Hacienda Business Park. They were gigantic projects that sucked out jobs from San Francisco and impacted our tax base in a negative manner. At the time, those business parks seemed like threats, but then the pendulum began to swing back towards San Francisco by the late 1990s. The early 2000s saw the dot-com boom, very quickly, it seems, followed by the dot-com bust. The bust of the dot-com industry in San Francisco caused a mass office space exodus, with office vacancy rates reaching 20%. And at the same time, those fickle young tech workers again fled the city in droves. From 2000 to 2004, another exodus occurred as 31,000 San Franciscan residents relocated to San Mateo County and 26,000 residents relocated to Alameda County, decimating our middle class. 
And finally, 2020 to 2021 and the COVID pandemic lockdowns. It was a witch's brew of high California property taxes, income taxes, unchecked crime, and soaring unemployment, which have left downtown San Francisco's Union Square shopping district boarded up and vacant. A mushrooming corruption investigation at City Hall has all but frozen city services and major city initiatives and policymaking. The work from home phenomenon has had many workers relocate out of San Francisco, causing rents to plummet by 20%. That's the good news. But Governor Newsom's lifting of the latest lockdown restrictions last week will probably have a positive effect, but still, it was only last week. So it remains, it remains to be seen when, that, when those measures will begin to have a positive economic impact. But the longer-term impacts of working from home may permanently change how the city fills its vacant offices and apartments. But that said, San Francisco is in the early stages of recovery from the latest economic downturn. If history is a guide, San Francisco has bounced back from much worse crises before. This one may take longer to adjust, but the city still has its advantages that have pulled it through in the past, and we anticipate the same will happen this time. My sources for today's episode include the American Film Institute, the San Francisco Chronicle, and History.com. Please visit our website at www.thesanfranciscoexperiencepodcast.com. Subscribe to the podcast to receive it directly to your inbox. It's free. Just hit the blue button on the first page of the website on your laptop or your desktop. As I said, please do subscribe. This has been the San Francisco Experience with your host, Jim Hurley, from America's favorite city, San Francisco.